would please turn the Bible to Zechariah. Zechariah, we weren't there last week for that was Father's Day. We took a break, but now we're back. This second to the last of the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah begins with eight visions, and we are on the seventh one here today. So we're almost through that. Zechariah chapter five, we'll begin reading in verse five and go to the end of the chapter. I think you're gonna really, really, really enjoy enjoy today, although it is heavy. And uh, as the, the preacher here, when we come to a heavy passage, whether I want to or not, I start wondering if y'all are gonna like it. And I start wondering if y'all are gonna think that this is too heavy or this is too deep or things like that. And uh, you know, there's a real sense in which I uh, want you guys to like me and um, you know, there's a sense in which I want you all to like the, the sermons and leave out of here thinking, wow, that was a good one, you know, things like that. And, and yet I'm reminded that what God has asked the ministers to do is to preach the word and to be a shepherd that is making sure that you all know what God says so that you're dealing with, with truth. Okay, if you will not take serious God or take serious what God has said, then you're in some serious trouble. You're not ready to die. You're not ready to stand before God in judgment. And so really what a, what a minister's job becomes is to make sure you know that and make sure you not only know that, but you know what he says so that you are prepared for that. And then I'm not as worried as much about how y'all receive it. Or rather, I should say, how y'all receive me. I was reminded of that this week. On Tuesday, I got called to the hospital that morning to visit Annette Darnell. I left, and things weren't good, and I said, I'll be back in the afternoon. I went back in the afternoon, and things seemed to be pretty good. Doctors had said they have three to four days to see which direction she's going. Just about the time I got home from Baptist East Hospital and had changed out of the suit and tie that I was wearing into some shorts and a shirt, they called again and said, you need to get back up here. So I went back up to Baptist East for the third time in a day, and within minutes, she passed away. Our dear sister, Annette Darnell, if you haven't heard, her memorial service will be right here in our church in this sanctuary Friday at 6 o'clock, this Friday at 6 o'clock. But as I stood there and watched everybody in shock at how quickly this had gone downhill, my heart was so heavy. I started thinking things like, was she ready? Where's she going? Does she believe? Are her sins forgiven? And then I reminded, or God reminded me that I'm, I'm her pastor. So if anybody ought to really be caring about that, it ought to be me. Had I talked to her about the Lord? Had she really dealt with truth? Had I preached sermons to her all the time that really just made her feel good about herself and never dealt with uh, sin and the forgiveness of sins and really led her to lean on the mercy of God that he would receive her well and that she would be on her way to heaven? I started thinking about all those things. I started thinking about the role that I did or didn't play in her life leading to death. I started thinking about the role that all of us have played in her life And I was reminded that these things matter. I know you don't want to think that they matter, 
I know, I, I know that some of you all will walk out of here today and go, ain't that, ain't that big of a deal? That was deep and a little, little over the top. But you weren't at her bedside this week. You didn't deal with it that way. You weren't reminded of how serious these things are. And then we come to Zechariah chapter five and we get another vision and I wanna remind you that God's people had been in exile. They had been out of Jerusalem. Things were not right. There wasn't the worship going on the way it should. The temple had not been rebuilt. Things were not right. And now God, through the, 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 the prophet Haggai, which is the one before this one, and then Zechariah, God had given these guys these uh, messages to tell God's people that it's coming. I'm restoring you all. You're coming back to salvation. You're coming back to a relationship with God. You're coming back to worship in the temple is going to be rebuilt and you're going to be restored and all of this stuff is in process and these eight visions are like different glimpses of that. You remember last week it was the flying scroll and it was that the word of God is the truth and for everybody that wants to hide or get away from the word of God or ignore it or act like it doesn't matter to them or act like they don't believe it, I can live however I want to, what God says doesn't define me, he says, no, it's actually like a flying scroll that you can't get away from. And even when you go into your house and try to get away from it, it will follow you there. That was last week's. But this week, we have a woman in a basket. That's the vision this week, a woman in a basket. Read with me at Zechariah 5, beginning in verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. This is the seventh vision. Again, these are not dreams. These are visions. He is awake. God is just showing this to his man, the prophet Zechariah. This one starts out a little bit differently, doesn't it? It doesn't even tell us what he sees. Normally in these visions, he says, hey, look at that, and he says what he sees, and then he asks, what is that? That's not the way it goes in this one. It goes straight from look to what is it. Doesn't even tell us what it is until we get the explanation. Look at it again. Verse five, lift your eyes and see what it is. Verse six, what is it? Now, we've become accustomed to Zechariah saying, what is it? And that's a comfort to us because even God's man, the prophet, doesn't even understand what some of these visions are until they are explained to him. And that's a comfort to us. But in this one, he doesn't even tell us what he sees. It just directly goes to what is it? And it's a basket. It's got a woman in it. And it represents their sins. It represents the wickedness. I want to give you three points today. 
Number one, the reality of wickedness. Number two, the realm of wickedness. And lastly, the removal of wickedness. All right here, pretty clear. We're gonna have a big stretch today. The reality of wickedness, the realm of wickedness, and the removal of wickedness. What we actually have here is he sees a basket. He's thinking, what is that basket? The word is actually an ephah. We know about the size of that thing, not very big. And then he sees a woman in it. Clearly, this ephah basket cannot hold a real woman. And so what I want us to think about this as is a woman idol. So like a statue is in the basket that looks like a woman that represents their idolatry. We're not talking about an actual woman that was in this basket. She would not have fit in a basket, okay? So do not think that. Also, if you're thinking about an actual woman, then it will probably lead you distracted into, well, why is it a woman and not a man and all of those sort of things? I want you to think about this as a statue, as an idol, a woman idol representing the idolatry of the enemies of God. These nations that have attacked the people of Israel, that have them in captivity now, do not love God. They do not love the truth. They do not know him. They do not believe in him. They are idolaters. They worship things other than the one true and living God, and that is wickedness. And so when he sees the basket, he says, what is this? And he says, inside of that is the iniquity, their iniquity, their sins, their disobedience, their wrongdoings, and then there's a cover on it. Picture, cover on this basket. You ever seen a picnic basket before that had the like folding down lid? Picture the basket, it's got a lid on it, and the, the lid opens up, and you can see the woman idol inside of it. He says this, is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden way on its opening and closed it shut. Number one, the reality of wickedness. The Bible says here, it's the angel talking for God, relaying this message to the prophet so that he would tell it to his people so that we, some uh, thousands of years later, would read it and would understand it identifies these people as wicked. And I realize that that creates all sorts of problems. But the Bible does this. The Bible says that often many things are wicked. Now, you and I have a problem trying to say what's bad and what's not bad. To some people, they think this is bad, and some people think, well, I don't think that's really bad, Right? There are some things that are allowed in your home that some people say that would never be allowed in my home. There are some things that come out of your mouth that other people would say that would never be out of my mouth and we really aren't the best at calling things bad. And even though we don't even like to call things bad, we really don't like to call things wicked. If I were to ask you today, hey, tell me something that's wicked, it would be a pretty far stretch. You'd have to probably think of some of the worst things in the world to even go so far as to say, man, that's wicked. That's like evil in the worst type of evil. But I want you to see that there is a reality of wickedness. These are God's terms here. He says this, that is wickedness. There are some things that are wrong. There there are some things that are bad. I want to remind you that you are never ultimately the judge of that. Do yourself a great favor today and go ahead and admit and decide and conclude that you're not the judge of that. Surely we've seen the inconsistency of trying to decide for ourselves or rather for our world 
what is right and what is wrong. We're so inconsistent across our families, across our communities, across our world on what we think is wicked that we need to look elsewhere. There is one who says what is wicked and what is not, and that is God. Wickedness is a real thing. That's why we read earlier in our passage today about Romans chapter three, and many of you are familiar with Romans three. It's the passage that tells us that nobody is good. Well, if nobody's good, that means that everybody's bad. That's not my terms, that's God's terms. And he says that so that he could say this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. This is the word of God, that every single mouth would be stopped, that every single one of us are guilty before God with whatever we've said, but we're also guilty before God with trying to define good as we would, as trying to define wickedness as we would. And God does not want us to do that. God wants us to stop our mouths and understand God is the one that reigns. He defines the reality of wickedness. And after that, in Romans 3, it says that the whole world may be held accountable to God, which means God is saying to us that there is good and bad. There is right and wrong. There is wickedness, and you and I must be aware of that. So we must be thinking about what is wicked, and any and all wickedness that is in our lives must be repented of. We cannot go to God with our wickedness. We must come to God and ask him to forgive us of our sins, knowing that he does, because he loves us and sent his son Jesus to die for us, and that all of his redeeming work is found in what Christ did for us. You might say that Christ became our wickedness on the cross so that our wickedness would be removed. This is what the Bible teaches. But it does not allow for us to say there is no wickedness. It does not allow for us to say, well, I'll define wickedness. It opens us up to the reality that God defines wickedness. So here's where we need to think. Here's here's the direction we need to go with this. This opens us up to the huge difference between us and God. Now, there are many, many differences between us and God, but this opens us up to the difference between us and God as it comes to defining good and bad. We are so subjective, and try as we might, we are so subjective. God is altogether beautifully objective. It's either good or bad. It's either for him or it's not. Notice the difference in this. We will really, really, really struggle to call anything bad. We will really struggle to call anybody especially bad. We just don't do that. We don't get real comfortable with that, right? And so we're wishy-washy all over the place. We find ourselves being very inconsistent. This person that does this, we're ready to smack them and have them done away with. But this person that does it, we're like, yeah, you know. And we're like, but God is not that way. God draws clear lines. God says right and wrong, good and bad, true and, and, and false. God is that way. 
And so we notice just by bringing up the subject of good or bad or wickedness as our passage has today, we notice the clear difference between us and God. We struggle to define those things, but God does not. Because we are subjective and God is absolutely objective, we notice the difference between good as we would like to define things and holy the way God has. Holy is when you take altogether good and maximize it. When good is officially altogether completely good, you have holy. Everything about God is right and true. Everything about God is excellent and perfect. Everything about God is good. And so it is no problem. It is no step. It is just actually the the very next step to be able to say, now that I know everything that is good and true, I can clearly point out that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's bad and that's bad and that's bad and that's bad and that's wicked and that's wicked and that's wicked and that's wicked. And nobody has a problem with him doing that because he is holy. He is the standard of what is good. Now, that is much, much different from us. Because you and I are always living with the, 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 the analogy or, or the message that Jesus gives where there's a speck in their eye and a log in our eye. And so we're always trying to be careful to treat people in a way that we have not treated ourselves. But for God, it's not that way. And so when we hear in this passage that there's a basket with a woman idol in it and he says that that is wickedness, you and I are to be awake to God calls some things wicked. We are to hate what God hates. We are to love what God loves. We are to be against evil. We are to allow God to inform what we believe. We are to allow God to inform what we call wicked. And before we start thinking that it's everybody else, we must first deal with ourselves. Look in the mirror recognize our own flaws and sins and iniquity and wickedness in us. Whether it be the deeds we've done, whether it be the judgmental tendencies in us, whether it be the idolatrous hearts that we have, whether it be the continual pushing that we give to ourselves that we are good when we read the Bible and see that God tells us that while there may be some good in us, we are not good. We are to see here that when he calls the enemies of God wickedness, we are to understand I have no problem with that. Wickedness is a real thing. It highlights the difference between us and God. But while we get to discussing that, we don't want to miss the obvious in Zechariah 5 of the realm of wickedness. Notice here in our passage again that wickedness here The woman in the basket is contained. She's thrust back into the basket and the lid is closed on it. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but God is God. There is no one bigger or stronger. There is none more powerful. And Satan, the ruler of the domain of darkness, is powerful, but he's not as powerful as God. And he does have desires and plans and schemes, but they cannot overcome God. And so the more we study the Bible, the more we start to recognize, yes, that is true. 
For we see this absolute fearlessness in the Lord Jesus Christ that although wickedness was around him and attacking him at all times, he was never afraid. He walked foot in front of foot as a meek, lowly human being that feared no evil. Jesus was unstoppable. And the reason why evil and wickedness did not bother Jesus, because Jesus is God himself. And even that evil and wickedness is in a realm of under the sovereign lordship of God. God will not let evil do more than he has allowed it to do. While that raises all sorts of issues and questions about why does he allow it, he answers that he has a plan and a purpose in it, and we are to trust that. But it's in this vision here today that the basket keeps it enclosed. It's not wickedness running wild. It's not wickedness doing whatever it wants to do. It's not humanity living in a position where wickedness is stronger than God. We have passages that tell us that there is no condemnation. We have passages that tell us that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We have passages that teach us that no evil will overcome you. We have those. We're familiar with Job when God is the one that allows Satan to do all of that evil to Job. God allows Satan to do all of that wickedness to Job. And even still, God is in control. He has Satan on a leash. The wickedness is contained, even in those passages. Even as we read the story of Genesis and we see all that evil and wickedness that is happening to Joseph... In hindsight, you and I are able to see that God has all of that contained. We even see that God has it all contained, and Joseph comes to believe at the end of it all that God had a good plan in every bit of it, that what you meant for wickedness, God meant for good in my life. It was contained. And when we see it here in this realm, we see wickedness contained. A woman idol in a basket with a lid right there. We are to understand that while Zechariah knows that the people of God have suffered and suffered and suffered. They've been in captivity. They have been punished and disciplined by the almighty God. While they have been in that position, while they've been suffering, while they've been longing, while they've been crying out, how long, God, how long, God, how long, God, as their lives have been full of suffering, Zechariah recognizes right here that every bit of that has been under the plan of God, the containment of God, and that God can be trusted. God will keep his promise to them. God will not let them down. God always keeps his covenant. And we begin to see those truths and promises when we are reminded that the realm of wickedness is one that is contained by God. Listen to this commentator speak on this. He quotes Psalm 34 and he says, the eyes of the Lord are over the wicked to destroy their memory from the earth. Psalm 34. He says, and this mode of speaking often occurs in Scripture. The meaning then is that though wickedness spreads and extends through the whole earth, it is yet in a measure. But this measure is not always closed up. However, this may be, still God knows how to regulate all things so that impiety shall not exceed its limits. And this is most true, whatever view may be taken. For when enemies harass the church... Though they may be carried along in the air, that is, though God may not immediately restrain their wrongs, yet they sit in a measure and are ruled by the eyes of God so that they cannot move a finger except so far as they are permitted. Let us in a word know that in a state of things wholly disordered, God watches. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. 
Let us in a word know that in a state of things wholly disordered, God watches. And his eyes are vigilant in order to put an end to injuries. The same also may be said when God gives up to a reprobate mind those who deserve such a punishment. For though he cast them away and Satan takes possession of them, yet this remains true that they sit in a measure. They are not indeed shut in, but we ought not, as I have said, to suppose that God is indifferent in heaven. Let me say that again. To suppose that God is indifferent in heaven. He is not. Or that sins prevail in the world as though he did not see them. For his connivance is not blindness. The eyes of God then mark and observe whatever sins are done in the world. The realm of wickedness is not outside God. It's not outside the vision of God. It is not outside the salvation of God. God is in charge. God is in control. And we see this when we look at this woman idol in a basket. But then where do we go from there? Thirdly, the removal of wickedness. The reality of wickedness, it's real. The realm of wickedness, it's contained. The removal of wickedness. Next in the vision, if you look at verse nine, then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, the two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So now the basket is being taken away by these flying creatures that look like women. They are like a stork. Verse 10, then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? Good question, right? That would be the question that we all would ask. Any sort of evil or wickedness that would be before us, we would be wondering where are they going? What's gonna happen? Where are they going next, right? If it's a thunderstorm, we're thinking, oh no, I hope it doesn't hit there, right? If it's a gunman, we're thinking, I hope he's not over there, right? If it's a disease, we're thinking, I hope it's not going there, right? Whatever you might call wickedness, which here it's not a storm or a disease, it is sins of people. But they're wondering, where's it going? Where are they taking it? What might it ruin next? What it might it steal, kill, and destroy next? Who might suffer under this next? And he asked, where is it going? Where are they taking the basket? In verse 11, our final verse, to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. It's being removed from the people of God. Whereas Jerusalem is the, is the city of the people of God in the land of God, Shinar is the city or the place of the people of Babylon. This is a visual picture of God's people who have been dominated by God's enemies watching God take up all of the sin, contain it in a basket, and literally remove it and take it to a land that does not believe in God, build a house for it there, put it in the house, and this is where it will live. It is an absolute clear picture to Zechariah, the prophet of the people of God, people of Israel in the Old Testament. It is a crystal clear picture of the sins that have ruined them, the sins that have led to their judgment, the sins that have led to their punishment, and the sins that have thrived in their enemies being dealt with, removed, and taken away. 
one commentator says, as God's house is built in Jerusalem and he returns like we see in the first five visions, wickedness is carried far away and a house is built for it. This was a promise, a soul-strengthening promise to the people of God, to the people of Israel who are suffering under the judgment of God, who are suffering under the judgment of God from the enemies, from the Babylonians. God was reversing their punishment. He was removing the sin. He was bringing life to his people. They would be restored. They would have a land. They would build the house. They would get back into worship, and they would live in a relationship with God. The removal of wickedness. (coughs) For us, we're living past that time. It's been a long time since that happened. We think now to what would be the removal of wickedness for us. This is where we see Jesus come right into this passage. The reality of wickedness in our lives is true. I hope you will not deny that. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Disobedience is a characteristic of all of our lives, hopefully not too terribly much, but it is. And to disobey God is to be under the judgment of God, and we need our sins dealt with. There isn't a passage in Scripture, not a truth anywhere in the history of creation that tells you to try better or do better in order to get right with God. That is not the answer. Anybody at any place who is teaching us that is not teaching according to the word of God. But what the Bible does tell us, that God sent his son Jesus to become our wickedness. That he would die on the cross in our place. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God poured out his judgment wrath on Jesus and killed Jesus. And as Jesus took the wrath of God, he was removing the wickedness of the world. He was removing our sins. That whenever somebody turns to God and believes in Jesus and repents of their sins and asks for forgiveness, God removes from them the wickedness. It is true that wicked people can have the wickedness removed by the grace of God through the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Absolutely right. This is God's message. The Bible says it in so many ways. I've already mentioned Romans 8, 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning, Though we know ourselves to have sinned and fallen short, though we know ourselves to not be the standard at all that God himself is, God will not condemn us because Christ has removed any and all sin that would bring condemnation. Or perhaps you remember Psalm 103 that speaks of how far has he removed our sins from us, and it says as far as the east is from the west, as far as anybody could possibly possibly measure, God has removed our sins from us. Christianity is not a message about us doing better so that we will reflect God. It is not. It is a message about God removing our sins through the work of his son on the cross, who after he died on the cross was buried in the grave and rose again, and that if anybody believes, then God removes their sin. There is not a work inside of you, not a good work inside of you that can remove your sins. But There is power in Christ to be a real savior, And when you come to believe in Jesus, God removes your sins, and then that power of God working in you is what empowers you to live for him. And any goodness that flows out of you is by the grace of God. It's not earning you anything. It is a fruit of what Jesus has done in removing your sins. 
When we read about the removal of wickedness from the people of God, in our context, we are to understand this points us to Jesus. Jesus is the wickedness remover. If you're suffering from the guilt of sin, from the shame of sin, if you cannot escape the idea that you've done wrong, that life is a battle, life is a struggle, you wish you could do better, you're trying your best to do good, if you're living in that, which is very common to all of us, hear the absolutely soul-freeing truth. You cannot remove your sins, but God can. And he does through Jesus. Wickedness is removed in this vision. It's removed from the people. It is removed from their land. And you and I are to think about Christ who removes our sins. I want to share one more thing with you, and I'm not sure if you even care, but this is fascinating. All the commentaries are telling me that this vision is an exact like replica in the negative of the Ark of the Covenant. It's fascinating. In the Ark of the Covenant, you've got this box, right, that represents like a basket. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, you've got a lid that is the mercy seat. And on the sides of the Ark of the Covenant, you've got two angels, two cherubim that carry it. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant, you have the presence of the worthy God Almighty. That this vision, the seventh vision of Zechariah, is everything anti-God. It's not a box, it's a basket. It's got a lid on it. It's got two women, stork, angelic things that are carrying it off to a wicked land to have a house to hold it forever. And inside of it is this idol that they worship. What a fascinating thought. That all that that is there that has ruined so many people in the history of the world, a false idol, a thing to devote your life to that's not worth devoting your life to, in many ways has a shape of life, goodness, religion, but it's not the real thing. It's not the ark that God taught his people to build in the Old Testament so that we would have a house of God for a presence of God, but it resembles it in so many ways. One commentary says this, there are many elements of this vision suggesting the basket is a parody of the ark of the covenant. In addition to the cover sounding like mercy seat, literally they sound the same in the Hebrew word. In Hebrew, and the woman idol being enthroned in the basket, the two cherubim of the ark are paralleled by the two women with stork-like wings. As God's house is built in Jerusalem and he returns to it, wickedness is carried far away and a house is built for it. He goes on. In the Bible, listen to this. Babylon comes to represent proud human ingenuity and skill expressed in opposition to God. As at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. In Revelation 17, Babylon is a prostitute that seduces people with her glamour, but who in the end turns out to be a hideous beast that only destroys. 
A great threat for Christians today is the same as it was in Zechariah's day. Listen to this. This is a great threat to us. The seductiveness of wickedness and idols of our age. God's people must see through this deception and resist. Wickedness and idols are fighting to grab our souls and get our attention and therefore get our affections and therefore get our devotion. We must resist. We must identify that's not the truth. That's not the real thing. That's not what God says it means to live for God. That's not what God says it means to be good. God has defined good for me. God has defined wickedness for me. And our lives are being lived toward God by faith in Christ. While it is a heavy conversation to talk about wickedness, And while it certainly will make you at times politically incorrect, and while it certainly will draw lines in the relationships that you have, oftentimes friends are lost over the lines we draw of there's things that we can and we cannot do in order to live faithful to God. While we know that, we are encouraged that it's contained by our great God and Savior. And we are strengthened and literally satisfied knowing that he and he alone has removed our sins from us. Christ is worthy of that, and we know it. Now, when we start talking about wickedness, the conversation will almost almost go to just how heavy and complicated this world is. Sin is a spider web, and One wrong in this direction will often create many wrongs in that direction. And it's like, man, how do I make this right? How do I fix it? That's why the idea of the complete removal of God is so helpful. Several years ago, when we were in the diaper-changing stage of life, which we we really were, praise God we're out of it, but we we had five kids in seven years. We had the first three kids in two years. It was a lot of diapers. A lot of dirty diapers. I'll never forget one time I had changed a diaper in my little black car. And I thought I'd thrown it away. But apparently I didn't. And it wasn't a number one either. The next morning when I went out to get in my car, I could hardly breathe. I thought, what in the world? Started looking everywhere, and I found, sure enough, under the seat, a dirty diaper from the day before. It's horrible. And in my mind, I started thinking, I may have to get a new car. (laughs) This smells so bad. Windows rolled up and everything. I may have to get a new car. I got it, I threw it away, I rolled down the windows. Next time I went back, y'all, nothing. I'd removed the problem. Praise God, it didn't ruin my car. I had removed the problem. The Bible tells us the problem 
can be removed. But it makes very clear you can't remove it. Only he can. Only Jesus removes your wickedness. You can't. Stop trying to. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for the removal of sins, and may God get the glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the seventh and final vision. Thank you, Father, for you saying that there is wickedness. May we not keep acting like there isn't. Thank you that it can be removed. Thank you, God, that you're big enough that we can trust you with wickedness. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins. Oh, Father, strengthen us now to believe, to repent, to turn to you. Father, we ask your blessing on us as we sing our final song, that our hearts and lives would be responding to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.